Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope They Hear This podcast. And today we are continuing our dialogue on Asian American churches' response to racism. We have Dr. Stan Sonu on as a guest, and we get into what we think the response of the Asian American church has been, specifically the Korean American church, and what we think the church could be doing in addition to what it's already doing. And being that Dr. Stan is a doctor, we actually are able to get into an interesting topic of equity in healthcare from kind of the insider's perspective. So thank you guys for tuning in and I hope you enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope They Hear This podcast and we have a very special guest with us today. It's weird to say this because I kind of feel like I've known, I, I know you because um, you were a uh, frequent guest on the KTL podcast, which I really enjoyed. And uh, you're here and I, I'm getting to talk to you. So yeah, no, it's, really, yeah. it's, it's really nice to meet you, uh, Dr. Stan Sonu. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I know we kind of arranged this on short notice and I'm, I'm grateful that, uh, that we can have this conversation and continue this discussion on some really important issues of today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and before we, we get into that, um, just for the listeners who might not know you, can we kind of get into yeah, your background, kind of who you are? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure people are already curious because you know, I've addressed you as doctor. Um, so yeah, if you can get into that a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, so from now on, you're just calling me Stan. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a physician by profession, and I'm employed by Emory, but I spend 100% of my time down at Grady, which is downtown Atlanta. Um, mm. Grady is kind of known for the place people go if there's some sort of trauma or like car accident, gunshot type of thing. That's the stereotype, but... My training is actually in internal medicine and pediatrics, so I I, um, I deal with everything kind of that go, can go wrong inside the body in both adults and children. And um, prior, so I, I, my wife and I and our son and our daughter who was born this past year, um, we moved from Chicago in 2018 down here. But I actually grew up in Atlanta, so um, it was nice to kind of reconnect with a lot of people um, after having been in Chicago for like seven or eight years. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, my, when, when I was looking for jobs, my, my mom um, really, I mean, I, I'm not going to say she, she begged me, but she strongly encouraged me to, uh, to look at some place in Atlanta to consider as a job. And I told her the only place that I was interested in working at was Grady. Um, and you know, I think a lot of that will kind of come out in the conversation that we have. Uh, but yeah, I, I love it. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult place to be for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. It's a broken place in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. I, I tell people that I have the, the privilege of driving out of my, you know, when I drive out of the parking garage at Grady every day, I feel like I'm a part of the fight. Uh, you know, I'm doing something that counts. I'm doing something that matters. And, um, and yeah, that, that's huge. That's everything that I had yeah. hoped for in a career. So I love it. Yeah. I'm a Grady doc. Wow. So do you, um, this is kind of a side question, but do mm. you, have you been dealing with uh, COVID patients? Recently? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. you know, it, it, we were kind of bracing for the worst at Grady and I'll say that we definitely got our fair share. 
Uh, fortunately, we didn't have a situation where our intensive care units or ICUs were overwhelmed. But COVID's still around. It hasn't gone away. It's still something that we are on guard against. I wear my N95 when I'm in, you know, when I'm when I'm on service in the hospital. Uh, I'm wearing it, you know, my mask 12 hours a day, and so wow. that's the new reality. And I've seen, I've taken care of patients with COVID up close. I've seen, I've seen it up close, and it's it's the real deal. It's scary. Um, mm-hmm. People are coming in really, really sick, and it's unlike anything that we've seen before. So it is a real threat, uh, and it is something that also is 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 disproportionately affecting black and brown our black and brown neighbors. Um, mm-hmm. That's the truth of it. And I know that. I mean, of course, that I'm, I'm down at Grady, so I you know I, I'm not exactly seeing the widest range socioeconomically of people. But still, I mean, all the data across the country, Georgia included, shows that it's, it's really disproportionately affecting um, communities of color. Wow. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, I want to thank you for, you know, being on the front line fighting oh, yeah. the fight for us. You know, it's, it's, it's the job, right? It's what we signed up for. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate all the gesture and I've gotten a lot of, you know, emails and texts and stuff over the, over the weeks. But... Uh, this is what I signed up for. You know, this is this mm-hmm. is like what I what I went into the field for. Um, but yeah, certainly I appreciate it because you know it is it is a risk for my family and um, you know people that I love. And I, this is our basement right now, so I have to come in every day through the basement. I strip my clothes and I hop right in the shower before I see anybody. Um, but you know, so outside of those kind of wow. tedious precautions, um, as long as you wash your hands, you know, do the things I say, they say, wash your hands, avoid touching your face, wear your mask, like the risk of, of catching COVID really is, is pretty, pretty low. So mm. um, that plus proximity and time spent in, in a public space um, are, are factors that can increase your risk of, of, of catching the virus. Yeah. Yeah. And so then uh, just hopping into the topic at hand today, I know we were kind of want to continue the discussion, right? Um, as Asian Americans, and specifically as Asian American Christians, like what can we be doing to, to help our black brothers and sisters? You know, how can we become allies? And, you know, the, the first question I want to ask mm-hmm. in regards to that is, what do you feel like the response of the um, Asian American church has been to like all, all the things that we've been seeing? And do you, do you feel like it's been an adequate response or... Are there things that you would change about it? Yeah, you know, I, I so, you know, a little bit of background about me is I, I grew up in Atlanta. We moved here from um, Illinois when I was like four or five. And so from five through high school, I was in Atlanta. I, I went to a church in Duluth, um, KCPC or Yanop. Mm-hmm. And um, the church was good to me. You know, I, I'm one of the... F- maybe the few I feel like that actually had a, had a wonderful experience in the church. And it was a place where I came to know the Lord and um, it was a very formative time for me. College was even more formative um, and, and a time when Jesus really became real to my life in, in, in ways that um, I, I wanted to surrender 
my life, you know, in, in, in my career in a way that um, aligned with what, what Christ, you know, really speaks, um, how he, how he, how he, what he's, what he, what he says, you know, throughout scripture in the gospels and, and what he says about how we should live and how we should love our neighbor. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in the church and in specifically the Korean church. And so I, and like I said, because, because I've had a great experience in it, I, I love the Korean church. I'm not a part of it today. And, and I think, and I'm happy to share about that too, mm-hmm. but not because I have some kind of um, beef with it or have rejected it or have rejected the gospels in any way. I mean, I'm still a Christian and um, I, I love, I love God and, and mm-hmm. um, I'm still living in that kind of surrender or I, or I hope I am. Um, and so I think when it comes to, you know, to your question around like the issue of what the church, what our, what our Korean American church response has been around issues of justice or injustice, specifically around matters of race and ethnicity, inequity, um, and, and I don't think anybody would be surprised by this, but I think it's been silence. Um, mm. And I think that silence has been for not just one, I mean, it's not a simple, like, we've just been quiet and that's it. Um, and I think the implication when, when we say we've been silent is that it's been, it's because we have been apathetic or indifferent. I don't think it's just that. I think part of it is that. Part of it is where we've had church. We, you know, most of our Korean churches, especially in Atlanta, are in the suburbs. And so we're sort of disconnected mm-hmm. from the reality of a lot of people in Atlanta. Um, I, I remember, uh, I distinctly remember when the first year Eileen and I, my wife, we were living in Chicago. And we were living in the city and very, a lot more diverse than any place that we had lived in in, in the suburbs of, of Atlanta. And I remember thinking, wow, and at the time my parents were living in Alpharetta, and I remember thinking, wow, you could, you can drive through Alpharetta and not see a single person who's homeless, you know, not see a, see a single person who's panhandling yeah. for money or for food, right? And, and so if you grow up in that environment year after year in Alpharetta, right, if that's your reality, then... I could see how you might think that, well, Atlanta's fine. Like, we're fine. There, we don't, there's not a whole lot of poverty here. There's not a whole lot of injustice here. I mean, people, most people have homes. Most people have cars. They're doing their thing. And so that, that actually kind of creates a, a almost like pseudo reality of your city. But, mm. you know, I drive downtown every day. I'm going into Grady, and it's a completely different reality from what I, I grew up living. And, and so... Mm. I think part of the silence is just a disconnection along with, you know, I think there's definitely been some apathy or indifference. Um, and I think if we dig deeper, right, and look, look at that question from a cultural lens as Koreans, right? You know, personally, I think there's two, two things that come to mind. I always think about this. One, uh, I think we have this aversion as Korean Americans of being wrong, and I think it yeah. can, might be related to like this pressure of like of being right, of doing well academically, of being successful. But I, I think we have this aversion. I know I do of of being wrong or like or looking like a fool, or speaking too soon, being too hasty with a decision. And so we like to when we hear about a problem, kind of sit back, take our time, 
be pragmatic, not be too rushed to, to make a judgment. Uh, we want to be balanced about it, especially around kind of really serious issues of justice. And so I think we have this tendency, we want to wait until there's like conclusive evidence that this is wrong. And then we'll be like, oh yeah, that's wrong and we'll speak out. Uh, and then secondly, I think, you know, if, for, for people who don't understand Korean American culture, I think they could look at us and say, oh, you guys are just quiet by nature. But David, I know, you know, like having just met you, I can just say like, you, I know, you know, we're not a quiet people, right? We're a hierarchical yeah. mm-hmm. people, you know? And so I think there's this kind of cultural hierarchy that we have where we defer to someone older than us. If I'm in the presence of someone older than me, my assumption is they know more about life than I do. They're, they're smarter than me for that reason. And my opinion about something, whatever it is, is secondary to, to their opinion. And so I'm quiet in that space, right? When someone older than me it, you know, has an opinion about whatever issue we're talking about. And then when, in, in a different scenario, when I'm the older one, now that's my turn to talk, right? Like now I have the authority culturally to say, this is what it is, this is my opinion, you know, in, in my inferences, that's your opinion too, younger person, right? And don't, don't, don't try to challenge me, right? That's disrespectful right. if you try to challenge me um, because I know more about life than you do, even though I'm only a year older. You know, it, it can be, right. even if you're only like a few months older than somebody, there's still that hierarchy, right? Yeah. And I think that can be a good thing, but it can also be, problematic in that when we're outside of our own culture, then it looks that we, we, we kind of act through the same lens, right? When, when we come around someone with some authority, um, whether it's a boss or like, I don't know, someone older than us who has a higher position or a higher title than us, um, let's say even like a pastor or, or a leader in the church, right? We then kind of take that, like we have that cultural submission built in and we stay quiet. And so I think there are a lot of reasons why um, our response has been silence. But I know, and again, maybe, maybe part of it is apathy and indifference. Um, maybe I'm downplaying that. But I, I do think a, a big piece of it is um, that it's a complicated reason, but I don't think it's because, at least especially these days, I don't think it's because Korean Americans aren't thinking about this issue. I think... Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're integrated into the society. We, we're savvy with social media. You know, we read the news. Yeah. We speak English well. We understand English well. We're culturally American in a lot of ways. And so we're paying attention. And the question is, when we look at our institutions, specifically the church, uh, I don't know if there's been a whole lot of leadership in terms of stepping out and trying to engage in these issues. Because one, you know, one other piece of this is too is like we're we're still pretty, as a as, you know, for the Korean American Church, is still pretty new in this country, especially in a, in a, in, our, in our city in Atlanta. Uh, I would say that maybe we're two generations in of churches, right? We might have like our parents, you know, and I say that as like a thirty-six-year-old father, right? But <laughs> our parents' generation, we had that church, uh, and then and then like the EM, right? the EM generation, right. and then, like, that's it, right? There's no, there's not really, like, a great 
grandparents' church, Korean American church in the city or a grandparents' church, right? It's like our parents, which is kind of the catch-all for everybody older than us, and then us, who's, who are more culturally American um, and speak English fluently. Uh, and so sometimes we might get caught up in things like there's a precedent for what we do, but really when you look at it um, objectively, like there is no precedent. Like we're still figuring out mm. what being a Korean American Christian is in this city. We're still figuring out yeah. what, it, what, it, what a Korean American church looks like, what that identity is. And, and, I, and I have conversations with this all the time with my other you know, friends who are pastors. We wrestle with this. Like, what does it mean to be a Korean American Christian like, uh, in, in terms of like hard, objective identity metrics? When you close your eyes yeah. and you walk into any Korean American church in the city, can you, can you, like, are there cultural markers that would point to you, that would inform you to the extent that, oh, yeah, this is a Korean church? Like, I, I don't right. know if we have all that figured out yet, you know? Um, yeah. And that's not to, like, if you, cast judgment on it, yeah. And, and if you walk into a black church and mm-hmm. you have your eyes closed, you definitely, there are things that culturally signal, oh, right. I'm in a black church or, or a white church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And in Latino church, Latinx church, like in terms of mm-hmm. the songs they sing, um, even like the order of worship, um, the sermon style, the sermon length, like all these kind of things. I would say in, you know, maybe some people would push back, but I, I think that in a lot of ways we resemble the white church. Right. Yeah. When we yeah. if you were to close your eyes and hop into, you know, the average Korean American church in the city and not just Atlanta, but across the country. Um, I don't know if there would be a lot of distinctions from a white church, right? We, we, we favor Hillsong. We favor Passion. We go to Passion. We want to go to Hillsong in Australia to learn how to lead worship. Like we, 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 that's embedded in our culture now. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think we also have to realize that we didn't, like this, this culture is, First, it's new, and it's not necessarily from us. And, and so I think mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of important to, to highlight some of those things because it's not just the style of worship, but it's also the theology that comes with it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how we view the Gospels and, and how, we, um, how we exegete, you know, the exegesis from, from the text, you know, how that, how that matters to us and and how that the application of the gospels and scripture in our lives, like all that is derived, not necessarily from what it means to be Korean and Christian, but perhaps Korean American in a, in a white context and Christian. So yeah, we've been and, silent. And the long answer to your question is, is we've been silent. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I, I really appreciate you um, talking about our culture and what the silence can mean. Cause mm-hmm. um, perception wise, um, like, someone looking from the outside in might think, oh, Korean Americans are being silent because they don't care. Um, Mm -hmm. If they don't have the context of knowing kind of our cultural background, that's a very easy conclusion to get to. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important that we vocalize what our culture is so that people don't get that misconception. But at the same time, I think it's important that we are aware that that's how it's being perceived. Mm -hmm. Um, Because... We definitely don't want to be people who um, brush off social injustices and say, well, it doesn't matter to us, so we're not going to care about it. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, historically, uh, Korean people are an oppressed people. Yes. Um, if, if you think about like our like South Korea, the occupation of uh, the Japanese army mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, so if if there is a minority group in America that can understand oppression and relate to it and you know want to speak out against it, I think it's us. Um, I, I completely agree. And you know mm-hmm. the, what the, the interesting part about that what you just said is. I don't remember ever talking about our oppression as a people in the church growing up. Mm. I don't ever remember having any conversation about that. It was almost like that was erased from our history. Like it was something, maybe it was too painful for our parents to look at and and acknowledge and say like, what do we learn from this? How can we be better? Um, what, What baggage do we carry from this? Um, I think in a lot of ways, we've kind of brushed it under the rug. And, and that's, a, that's another kind of cultural phenomenon of, of Koreans, too. It's, it's, and I, and I've, I've been hearing these stories more and more about like people, you know, other like, like Korean brothers and sisters who grew up in, in the most abusive or neglectful homes. And yet their parents would put on this, you know, they would they would put the the dirty van in the garage on Sunday and they would bring out the shiny Lexus and drive that to church and, and, and present this image or facade that like everything is fine. My family is fine. Like we're blessed. We're good. God is, God is good in us. But, but then come the next day, like it's the kind of same brokenness that just doesn't. So I don't know if culturally we, we ever healed from, from those mm. things that we, we had before. And instead we tried to like, not acknowledge it, try to forget it, kind of cleave it, c- cut it off from our history and start fresh in this land of opportunity. And so mm. I think that part of the maybe pro- pro- part of the problem is like we got disconnected from our own story, because like you said, we know what it's like to have, you know, systemic injustice thrown onto our people in the form of murder and rape and pillaging and, you know, and not to mention educational and economic disadvantage, right? It, all that was stripped from us because we were devalued systemically as a people. We, we were told we were inferior, uglier, dumber, less than. And so that's why we have this sort of, you know, cultural rage too, right? Like yeah. when you get push down like that generation after generation when you see people who you love uh who are murdered for no reason or raped you know in in you know inexplicably explicably mm-hmm. it it generates a rage and and so we have that right like we have that kind of phenomenon in us and so i think if if anybody should understand at least put in the context i'm not saying it's right but put in the context why lootings would happen in the midst of protest mm. like we yeah. should understand that right we should yeah. understand what it's like to just say f it like f it like you've done enough to me already i'm gonna burn this down right like we i yeah. think you know we kind of have like that so i'm not saying like other groups can understand that but i think if, as, if the more connected we are to our history uh, the more we can understand that. So I don't know the reasons why we don't talk, why we're so disconnected from our history, but I can, I can only, you know, estimate or, or, or guess why. But, but the fact of the matter yeah. is that, yeah, we have been. 
And, and just to give context to the listener a little bit, um, some of the things mm-hmm. that, um, I mean, because one thing that a lot of people don't know is um, originally the English spelling of Korea started with a C. Um, mm. But the reason why it changed to a K is because during the Japanese occupation, Japan said, we don't like the fact that Korea comes before us. So we're going to change it to a K so that they're after us. Wow. So yeah, I forgot even like, wow. yeah. yeah, even small, like, I mean, seemingly small, but really profound things have been done to us to oppress us. Mm-hmm. And uh, like we were talking about, um, the, the rage and the lashing out, like that's happened in our history too. Um, the assassination at... I forget the name of the train station, but there was a assass- uh, Korean rebels carried out an assassination um, of a, a leader in the Japanese army. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember um, the, there was a really like, chilling quote by the mother of, of the, uh, the person that carried out the assassination. And it was almost she was pretty much uh, condoning um, the said violence. And from mm-hmm. the outside perspective, it can be like, how can a mother condone? her son um, killing some killing another human being but if you understand that rage and that mm-hmm. kind of desperation of trying to break out of bondage um, then you're like okay that that makes complete sense right right and um, one thing I want to uh, kind of bring to the attention of, of the listeners here is this is something that uh, Andy Yun of the Nabi Design mm. Podcast says yeah, a lot yeah he's, he's a historian right he's like yeah. kind of our, our living historian here yeah he, he's, he likes to say this he says you know black people have Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the Indian people, when oppressed by the British, um, had Gandhi. And he said, Koreans don't realize we have our own civil rights leader, pioneer, which was An Chang-ho. That's right. Or his right. pen name, uh, Tozan. Mm-hmm. So like, if, if you want to get reconnected to that, I, w- I would suggest that you start there. Um, look up An Chang-ho, see all the things that he did. Um, and you'll be surprised to see how he's influenced civil rights movements globally um, not just right. in korea um mm-hmm. so but i i i, I do um i i really do think that korean americans have the capacity um obviously not at the same level especially because we are we aren't really oppressed anymore um we got our own country back um the same level of oppression that black people still live through today we don't live through that so it, it's not at the same level but i, I think we can be sympathetic towards that because it's in our DNA. Um, yeah. It's kind of been woven into our, our history. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, what I would say, too, is that, you know, I think sh- certainly the, the, the nature of the oppression looks different. Um, mm-hmm. But I would still say that um, we encounter racism here. You know, and, and just, you know, real quick, when I, when I say racism, so there's, there's kind of like terminology, right? Racism is about power. And so that, like, when you think, when I say racism, I automatically think power. And I think power differential. Like, who has power? And so mm-hmm. racism is, is a bit different from prejudice. Prejudice is when you have a belief or attitude about another group of people that's unfounded. You, you prejudge them that way without knowing them, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's true or not. And so... People of color, like minorities, can be prejudiced against each other, but it's very difficult to be racist because the power differential isn't always clear there, right? Power, mm-hmm. so racism is, is power plus prejudice. It's, it's when you have prejudice and you have the power to enact policies to, 
to live out that that prejudice, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether it's, um, I mean, we have we have so many examples in, in U.S. history, right? Uh, whether it's after Reconstruction, the Jim Crow laws, where they said separate but equal, like that's that's racism acting on prejudice, and mm-hmm. and and so that that the implications there was. Black people could not buy homes in certain neighborhoods. There was redlining, they couldn't, which meant they had uh, less access to better schools, better economic, better jobs, better economic opportunities and jobs, so on and so forth. And so racism is about power. And, and, and so what I would say is, is sir, certainly our, our, the oppression that we've experienced as Korean Americans or Asian Americans in this country looks different than than. African Americans, for sure. Um, we weren't brought here on ships in 1619, 400 years ago. Um, we we weren't we didn't have a civil war that was fought, and then have a have a, you know a nice period of reconstruction, and then go into Jim Crow. Like that's not our history, but yeah. certainly there are some parallels in the sense that we have been told through policies, again, racist racist practices, that we don't belong here. And so a lot of people forget the the Chinese Exclusion Act of, I think it was like 1882, 1883. But that was a a bill that was passed on a federal level banning Chinese immigrants, Chinese people from immigrating or becoming naturalized citizens. And then I think in like the 1920s after World War I started, that act expanded to include all Asians, not just Chinese people. So that, that includes us, that includes um, people from Japan, you know, every Asian country. So that was like a literal legislative, that was a policy that went through that said, you are, you are a foreigner forever. Mm-hmm. Like you are not going to be a citizen here. You can live here if you already do, but you don't belong here, right? And so we, we kind of hear this like term like perpetual foreigner, like that's where that comes from. Like it was not a, just an idea that popped up because we experienced racism from, you know, random person growing up. But like that was a bill that that was passed to tell us we're, we're like when, when it comes to what a being American means, it's not us. And so mm-hmm. black people understand that, too. They under like that's that's the essence of one of the s like key pillars of what it means to be on the wrong side of racism in this country to, yeah. to be made to feel like you don't belong here. Your life doesn't matter as much. What you care about doesn't really matter in the mainstream conversation. So, yeah, I mean, we're not. And, but, but, you know, you can look through history and even say, like, wow, we've actually experienced lynching, too. Like, or at least Asian Americans have. I think I, I forgot when the date was, but the, sing, the single greatest um, lynching in terms of numbers of people who were, who, who were killed happened in San Francisco against Chinese immigrants, um, I think in the 19th wow. century. So I think over like 50 people were, were killed in one day. Uh, and, and so, you know, our, our people have, have experienced similar things, not to the same endemic nature, but, you know, again, we're kind of disconnected from these stories. And so when, when you grow up in a church and everything is about like personalizing the gospel and everything is about like your personal devotion, which are great things, but you're not hearing the the meta narrative of like where we came from, like what we had to overcome to and to love the Lord, and, and like 
what, what it costs us to be devoted, like all those things. When you don't get that, that kind of teaching, then, then you start to think, man, like we're good. Like we're, mm. we're fine in this country. You know, like we have nothing to complain about because I got my house in, in the suburbs. I go to a great church. I have my community. I got my restaurants. I got my car. I got my job. Like everything's good. But again, like being, being disconnected from our history, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a lie in, in a way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And another interesting caveat to that is when we hear things like the Chinese Exclusion Act or the internment of Japanese people, mm-hmm. a lot of times Korean Americans say, well, that's not us. Like mm-hmm. we're privileged to know where our country of origin is. Right. We know exactly where we came from. We know our lineage. If you really research your last name, like, there's ways to figure out like, what your ancestry is. So right. we kind of have these pockets of Asian Americans, even though most of white America probably sees us as one group. Um, um, so I, I think that also kind of damages the, um, kind of our identity. It, it has a detrimental effect to our identity as Asian Americans. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like we say, well, that, that's happening to outsiders, so we don't have to worry about it. Not right. realizing that it actually you know, is happening to us. Like it yeah, is our yeah. race. Yeah. Right. And, um, and I, you're I, right. I mean, we, oh yeah, go ahead. No, you, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was gonna, well, I was going to say like, we, we as Koreans are incredibly proud as Asians. Like, you know that yeah. we're the, probably the yes. proudest. I don't know why, but maybe it's just cause like all the, all the crap we had to go through and, and survive in our history, but you know, we're very proud people. And so we think, man, we're very different from every other Asian, but <laughs> To the outsider, no, we're not. You know, I can't tell you how many times people called me Chinese or Japanese growing up, but then they would never guess Korean, right? So mm-hmm. to, to the non-Korean person, the non-Asian person, we're all the same. And, 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 and that matters because we get thrown into the mix, right? So whatever happened to Japanese people, you know, in the 1940s, in, in the internment camps, whatever happened to to Chinese immigrants in the 19th century, that, that all can happen to us as well, just like that. And, and so yeah. I think the other side of this too is, you know, sometimes, or I think not sometimes, but in a lot of ways, we've forgotten the ways in which our, you know, interests as Asian Americans in this country were actually very much aligned with African Americans in, 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 in their fight for civil rights. And, and so that's really important to acknowledge as well, because especially when you think about how, how in a lot of ways, the relationship between the African-American and Asian-American community, specifically Korean-American community, is very tense at times. Um, it can be very, very tense. And, and there's a lot of reason for that. But I think when we, when we focus on that tension, we also forget the fact that Wow, there were actually really pivotal moments in our history when we were aligned. And my favorite example, and it was recently discussed in a podcast um, that that was posted by the Atlanta Asian American Christian Collective. But it was this conversation between some people who I really admire. They were talking specifically about Black American and Asian American relationships and like that racial tension and like what does reconciliation look like, and. Um, Apparently, you know, there after World War II ended, there was this bill that came up 
that was pushing for reparations for Japanese Americans because they had been unfairly put, unjustly, you know, imprisoned in internment camps. And so there was actually some momentum to support reparations for, for these people who were, you know, imprisoned in these camps. And the bill came down to, I think, one or two votes, but it passed with the support of one of the few black congressmen. It was a black man who ended up supporting reparations. And so that bill would never have passed if it wasn't for his support. And the, mm-hmm. the tragic thing about that is, right, Japanese Americans got reparations because of that bill because, and, and because, it was, because it passed with the support of that black congressman. But no reparations has been, have been ever given for African Americans. So in that yeah. moment, it was like a beautiful thing but also a really tragic thing where you had a lot of African-Americans in that time saying like, what, like, how can they get reparations for five, ten, eight, eight, ten years of, 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 of being in prison? What about our 400 years of being yeah. enslaved? Like, where, where are the reparations there? So, so, I mean, I think that was both like a beautiful moment, but also a tragedy. You could look at it as, man, that was, that was a great moment of solidarity, but it's also like a, a wedge, right? Now that kind of puts black Americans and Asian Americans on opposite sides to say like, well, you got reparations. What about, are you going to come support us now? So, you know, I, I think that's, we need to have more conversations about kind of those moments when, when things were aligned because, you know, the, the myth of the model minority, one of the, one of the big problems with it is that it, it puts us as, as the successful minority, it kind of pitches us against uh, other people of co- color, specifically African Americans, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, man, that's that's so good. But um, b- before we move on to the next question, mm-hmm. I was going to ask. Um, I wanted to uh, turn the wheel back a little bit and go back to something that you mentioned. One one thing that I struggle, you know, as a Christian, a, mm-hmm. a Korean American Christian, is w- when I do see the riots, I I do feel like I do feel in my heart, yeah, like. If something like this were happening to my family, to my community, I would probably be out there, you know, causing havoc too. Like I would want to burn down everything if, you know, my like my brother were gunned down for no reason or, or you know, someone had put their knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he, you know, died from not being able to breathe. So I get the, the human part of that and I get the like the rage um, and I, I I can understand it, mm-hmm. but as a Christian who is called to you know, love all your neighbors, uh, that that includes you know the people who own those small businesses or like w- whatever it may be. Like, how do you? Is there a way to reconcile the, the the kind of the righteous anger and the the rage that you feel with the want to uh, keep peace? Like is do you think yeah. there's a way to kind of reconcile those two? I mean that's a it's a really tough issue. And and I think maybe it's it's our human nature, but when we when we see the news, you know, there's something there's something fear invoking about hearing about a protest. When you when you hear about a lot of people getting together, um, angry, raising their voices in solidarity. To, towards some cause that raises people's eyebrows, and that's why protest is a powerful form of of uh, voicing dissent. 
And, and so maybe it's our human nature that when we hear about the, the really kind of negative side of protesting, the rioting and looting, the people who are taking advantage of that situation and taking advantage of a vulnerable part of society, um, it, it makes us, oh, like, oh, that, you know, I can't, I can't get behind this cause now. Like, I, I, you know, I can't put my name mm. behind that. And, and, and so I, and it, there's, so there's like this tension there and, and I'm not, and I, I, I wouldn't, I certainly am not saying that I, I, you know, I don't think anybody is condoning this and I don't think any, any protester who, who is, who has that righteous anger, who wants justice, not just for George, George Floyd's family, not just for Ahmad Arbery's family, but for all black Americans, right? Who wants justice, who wants a system that guarantees justice that is just from the start uh, i don't think that any anybody there wants to see destruction right i think it's more of i understand the destruction i understand because that comes from pain and i think one, mm-hmm. one really important thing that we have you know that that i i didn't even realize until a few weeks ago um you know talking with some of my african-american friends about george floyd the, you know, a colleague of mine at Grady, you know, what she said was, you know, the, the first reaction when I saw that video, it wasn't shock and anger. For me, I, I was like, man, I was shocked. And then I was pissed. And then I was like, what are we going to do about it? And she was like, for me, it wasn't shock and anger. It was exhaustion. And it was grief. Right. So it was like this, this like, oh, my gosh, like not again, like this, like shoulder slumping like defeat kind of like Mm. the breath taken out of you. And and so like, think about that. Like if, you know, my reaction of shock and anger, like that, I had the luxury of doing that, right? I had the luxury of being like, oh my gosh, how could this happen? Oh, this can't be right. I'm like so mad at this. But for people whose lived experience is that reality, not just for this generation, not just in the last 10 years, but I mean, for 400 years to see another one fall like that another person like uh, you know my, my, this this colleague this friend said i felt like i grieved like i had lost my own son and and so wow. like that kind of pain and mourning in a human being right so you're going to you're going to see brokenness from that you're going to see a broken response from that and so I think it's it, as much as we who are untouched by this directly, at least can say, can have the grace to see that, you know, in our, in our black and brown brothers and sisters who are hurting to have the grace to, to see that. I mean, as, as difficult as that is, especially if, if it's your store that gets destroyed, right. I can't ask that of any, any other Korean American person, but you know, I would hope that like that God's grace would grow in me to to have those eyes of compassion and understanding and patience um, mm. to to not only get express that righteous anger, but also to have that extra measure of grace and extend that grace because it's all pain, it's all trauma, it's all injustice that has that has not gotten better at all over the years. Racism is no different. It's just better hidden, right? And there's that, mm. there's that phrase that's come out where it's not that more of these, you know, more police are, are 
um, committing these senseless acts of violence or killings. It's just being filmed, right? I think like Will Smith is credited for saying that. Yeah, so, and, and it's, so. again, it's not, you know, none of this is to say like all police are bad, you know, and, and I don't think anybody, it's just, we need justice and, and we need a system that guarantees justice and holds people accountable who are in power to maintain those systems of justice. And that's just not the reality, right? So, you know, there's no easy answer to that question of like, how do we reconcile like, oh man, this is, I get it, but looting is wrong. There's no easy answer there, but you have to find mm-hmm. some way to, to have grace and that righteous anger for justice in this, at the same time. And, yeah. and, and not, like having those two things does not excuse what is wrong. It doesn't say like, that's okay. Like, go ahead and loot Target. Like, no, that, that, that's not what anybody is saying. But it's saying, like, mm. it's pain, right? It's, yeah. it's pain. Like, can we understand that it's pain? It's, it's right. raw hurt and pain. Yeah. And I think um, this is something that um, I talked with my pastor on, uh, Pastor John, who was on, uh, well, I think it would be two episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and well, one thing that we... we ca- yeah, uh, one thing that we kind of came to was, um, like, because we're, we're, he's my pastor, so we're just talking all the time. Um, one thing we said was, you know, yeah, we, we can understand the, um, we can show grace, we can understand the righteous anger, but the text, in a lot of ways, is the living word, um, and it's personal to you. Like, when you read the Bible, and you take it as, oh, based on this, this person needs to change, you're reading it wrong. If you read the Bible and say, wow, I need to change, mm-hmm. that's when you're like really effectively reading the Bible in the proper way, right? So the conclusion that we kind of came to was, yeah, we we definitely show um, compassion, sympathy for um, what's happening to the black community. And we, yeah, we stand with them. But whenever a situation were to happen to Korean Americans, we should strive to um, uphold peace. Because, um, and, and I think that was really the only way that we could con- like reconcile the two. Um, just mm. use your convictions as a Christian, as a personal conviction. Um, we're not meant to be judges, right? God never said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit so that you can judge others. Um, it's, we're meant to show love, love first and foremost. So in, in that way, uh, we, we said, Maybe the best way is to simply say, man, we really understand you guys. But for us personally, we strive to uphold peace for us personally whenever that whenever we can. Does, yeah. does that make sense? Does yeah, that- yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I don't I don't certainly don't disagree with with the notion of being a peacekeeper. I think mm-hmm. the way that that is manifested or actualized is quite mm-hmm. there's a spectrum. Right. Because mm-hmm. on one hand keeping the peace is no conflict, but no conflict does not equal peace, right? No conflict mm, means right. a system of, un, you know, potentially of, of injustice is maintained, right? So mm. in that sense, no conflict means let me live my life. Let me, let me live my life normally. And so I, mm. I agree we need to be peacemakers, but, but to get to that point, is going to require some change, in, in my opinion, you know, and, yeah. and because right now, again, for the past 400 years, there has been no peace, right? There has, mm. there is no peace without justice. And, and there, there can be no reconcili- reconciliation without justice before then. We can't yeah. skip to re- reconciliation and forgiveness without 
without a, a, a deliberate intention for, for justice. And, and so I, I totally agree that we are called to be peacemakers. But I also say that, you know, I think the Bible is clear about what justice looks like. You know, I think there are moments over and over through the narrative text of Scripture, like of, of what justice is. Um, yeah. You know, you can look in Isaiah 58, Micah 6, 8. Uh, even in the Gospels, they kind of touch on what, what, gus- what justice looks like from the Sermon on the Mount. So we have those examples of what justice looks like for the oppressed and how we are called, like we are called out to stand up on behalf or stand with those who are oppressed. Like that's not a question, that's not a debated thing in Scripture. And so I think the question is then like how as peacemakers do we work towards uh, standing with the oppressed? What does that look mm-hmm. like? And, yeah. and so I don't think that, you know, and, and this is my opinion, right? Like I, I don't think that no conflict is, is, the, same as no, is the same as peace, um, especially sure. in, in this situation. Because, again, no conflict as it pertains to Korean Americans who are, you know, middle class, upper middle class means we just want things to quiet down. We don't want conflict on the news. We don't want any more people dying, any more buildings destroyed. But that doesn't change the system that led to those things in the first place. So, you know, yeah, yeah like I said, yeah, peace for sure. How we get there. Uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a dialogue we need to have openly as a church yeah. right yeah and i i'm grateful for people like you know martin luther king jr who um kind of modeled for us how to peacefully do certain things um and, and again in, in his peaceful protest there were definitely conflicts right like, right uh, p- people were hosed down they were you know guard dogs were like let loose on them and it wasn't an easy road a lot of people when they think about like the montgomery bus boycott they think it happened overnight like oh like these black people are serious Mm -hmm. so we should like it took months of like months of uh, 375 days yeah yeah yeah, 370 plus days over a year yeah imagine like walking to work every day for over a year rainer you know in the alabama heat Right. In the humidity of Alabama. So, yeah, I mean, to your point, uh, they they protested peacefully. And I think like, man, that is as wronged as they have been to have such a love and dedication to the gospel about about peace, being peacemakers to protest in that way. That that is like that. That gives me chills every time I think about it. Yeah. Because they had every right, right? They had that Han to just go out and burn everything up. And yet yeah. the, the gospel had worked in such a way where it said, no, like you get punched in the face, you turn the other cheek, right? Yeah. Luke 6, I think it's Luke 6, where it's like, isn't it easy to, to, to love those who love you, right? Mm. But how much harder is it to, to love those who to openly hate you, right? Like, that yeah. kind of call, like that can come from nowhere else but the gospel. And, and so yeah. that, 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 that cannot come from a secular view. It just doesn't make, like, it just does not, it cannot take hold in a, in a, in a widespread in, in a community of people, maybe a, a handful of people who are kind of exceptional, but like that kind of ethic to respond with peace can only come if the gospel is really touched 
a whole community of people. And so that, that's just yeah. an example for us, right? And you're right. Like people spit on them. They yelled at them. They blew up churches. They tried to kill his family. Um, and, and, and so it what like just because they protested peacefully does not mean that there was an absence of conflict in what they yeah. did. And so I think that's yeah, a great that's a great example to look at in terms of like what we can do, right? Because I think we might confuse as Korean Americans peace with no conflict because we just want people to get along. Like we we've tasted success in this country. We we want like we we kind of want to model that in a way. But again, that's kind of that model minority myth, right? So mm. like but but because we've tasted it we want to say like, hey, like just keep your head down, do your thing. It'll come your way, but it but it hasn't come their way, and in 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 frankly, it won't come their way unless unless we kind of galvanize together and, and stand up together. Yeah, yeah, and I think if people take what we just talked about and say, well, that's the only correct way to protest, and they use that to undermine the protests that are happening now, because overwhelmingly the protests are peaceful they're just not mm-hmm. on the news um just just the really bad parts are on the news so right. we our perception is that most of the protests are you know violent they're not right, right. so right. and um so I, if that's the way that you're taking this i want you to know that that's not what we're saying at all we're not saying that you know the way that martin luther king did it like that should be an example that should be something that we should look at and say wow that is amazing that is just mind-boggling that he was able to galvanize an entire community to act in that loving way mm-hmm. but if we were to see outlash of righteous anger like we don't then say oh that person's wrong and the entire movement is undermined right we we turn to man we really feel for them like we try to understand why they are behaving that way so that we can sympathize and empathize um mm-hmm. so I, I just want to make that clear for anybody um, um thinking that what we're saying is there's only one right way to protest. Right. Um, that, that's what we. That's the model that we strive for. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, whenever. Kind of, oh, go ahead. No, no, finish. Go ahead, yeah. yeah. Well, just no, I was going to say, just whenever we yeah. see, oh, sorry, whenever we see um, people lash out, and because a, a lot of this is just frustration and not knowing what to do, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you were saying, um, a lot of them don't have the power to change policy, um, so it's just a physical outlash. So. We should, yeah, definitely just strive to understand and stand with them. Yeah. And what I was going to say is just like kind of piggybacking off that sense of like, wow, the fact that people can even protest peacefully um, in in the midst of what's happened to them uh, or in response to what's happened to them, uh, in, in response to what little change there has been, at least in the, the, the narrative of, of, of black Americans being treated and perceived as less than, you know, white Americans. Uh, I think that's why, like, that's the context for why MLK always said, you know, who, who really hurt us the most were those moderate Christians. Because mm-hmm. if anybody was in the most comfortable position and, and who had the greatest privilege and luxury to engage and stand with us, it was the moderate Christian, it, mm-hmm. right? It, it, like, so, so to be frank, I think in a lot of ways, you know, the ways in which God has blessed the Korean American church, like we are now that moderate Christian. And so that, mm-hmm. that, that call is directly, in, I, I think I, I want to say it's directly to us 
um, because we have this privilege. We can step in. We can stand with. We can engage, even though no cost has been to us. The gospel is is one of the. I mean, I don't. Even, I'm not going to say like, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to try to be super dogmatic. But the gospel is was one of the 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 things that in this world that tell like it, that rationalizes standing up for your neighbor when you when they have when it's no interest of you like I, I, maybe there are other religions that say that I don't know but I know the gospel is one of the few religions in this world that says you can you should lay your life down Philippians two like your neighbor is above yourself like hold your neighbor above yourself. There, like that doesn't make sense in a secular sense. Like, why would you do that? What what ethic is yeah. there? Why why would you give your life for your neighbor? Right. So yeah. so that call is 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 really written in the gospel. And then the other thing that we should be exceptional at, and I and I and this was in the podcast or or the, one of the, the the Zoom meetings that I I saw recently. Um, and I'm going to give credit to Dr. Christina Edmondson. She said that if the church can do anything well. It should be that we should repent well. Like we should be the best at uh-huh. repenting. So repenting and, and, and loving your neighbor, like we should be the best at. Of anybody in this country, we should be the best at. And, and, so, that's, and so we are that moderate Christian now. And we are kind of at this critical inflection point in our history where if we do not engage 20 years from now, or maybe 10 years from now, they're going to look back on the Korean American church and say, why were you quiet? Why were you silent? Mm. Right. And, and like we yeah. said earlier, that's a, that's a complicated thing. It's not as simple as like we're indifferent, but the action, the inaction is going to be interpreted as indifference for better or for worse. For sure. And, and again, we need to be aware of that perception because we don't want to be out there spreading a message that we don't agree with. Um, and so I, I think the um, reality I think perceived reality a lot of times is as important as actual reality uh, mm-hmm. because to the person receiving it, there's no difference. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so, um, I'm sorry, do you, do you have like a time limit or no, no, no. Okay? Like, I'm, I'm good. We're, this is good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, cause, um, it's, we're almost at the hour mark, but I feel like, um, we still need to cover a, a few more things. So, sure. um, Question I want to then ask, kind of having gone through like our kind of cultural background and, and kind of what we're seeing right now, what do you think Korean American churches or maybe even just Korean American Christians can be doing better to be allies and to stand with our you know, black American uh, brothers and sisters? Yeah, I think the first thing we got to do is listen. And hmm. that is not an easy thing to do. By by listening, I don't mean just hear what's being said or you know stay up to date on social media or the news. Like that's not listening, but like listening is a part of listening is like opening your heart, and and opening your heart is a vulnerable thing to do, because when you do that, that means you are willing to have your opinion be changed. That is very vulnerable to to feel like that's like being on shaky ground. It, it's very unsettling to open yourself up to say, I'm actually going to listen and, and, and listen. I <laughs> can not just hear, but like, yeah. like listen. Yeah. And so I, I think we have to pray that, that we kind of have that posture of listening because if this doesn't hit us on a heart level, 
if you just try to engage with this on an intellectual level, just because of what you read on social media, that's not going to sustain any long-term effort. This, this has to hit you in the heart and, and anger you on a visceral level. And the injustice has to be unacceptable on, an, on a visceral level for us to you know, commit long-term to this. And so I, I think the first step is listen. And one really practical, tangible way to do that is to be in relationship with people of different perspectives, especially African-Americans. So if you don't get this, Right. If this none of this makes sense to you, if, like if, if 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 for the listener, if you're a person who like up until this point was like, I don't think any of this is, is like legit, but you're willing to listen. You know, I think that's a it's a great first step. Right. And so by listening, you're actually entering in that conversation with someone without judgment, without like I already have my mind made up about this. What what's changed my heart about this, and what what kind of always fires me up is when I when I hear these stories about you know directly from people about what it's like, because when you hear those stories, it's like man, this is not like some theory. This is not this is not some like media you know infiltration. Like this is not fake news, right? We blame the media for everything we don't like to hear about, but like when you hear these stories from people themselves, like it's it, it's. It's real, like the pain is real. And so listening is a first step. A great practical way to do that is to be in relationship. And so I'm not saying like go tokenize somebody. Don't say like, hey, you want to be my black friend? You know, like that, that's, that's not the same thing, right? But, you know, if, if you don't have, if you, if you, I mean, sidebar, but like if you don't have anybody in your network who is black, then, then that, I think that's a, that's a problem there, right? And, and I'm not trying to like cast judgment or anything like that, but like, Maybe that's why, you know, one has the perspective they have if they're not in actual relationship. So again, I can I can live in Alpharetta for ten years and not think that there are any problems in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not it's it's a there's a there's a proximity component to listening, um, mm-hmm. and then secondly, I think you know, and this is one thing that actually we do well in the Korean American churches is repent. You know, I think. We, um, we are a prideful people, but I also think that we can repent when it's needed. And um, we can repent for our sin when that conviction hits. And so I think that's step two is to, is to repent for our inaction, um, maybe some self-absorption, uh, maybe some, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, t- on, on balance, like I think the, the relationship again at times between African-Americans and Asian-Americans can be really tense for a good reason. You know, I, I think um, there have been, there, there is a mixed bag there. And, but in order to get to reconciliation, we got to repent, right? We got to be yeah. the first to say sorry. We have to be willing to come to the table to say like, we were wrong. Like, we've done some wrong things. And, and we're really sorry for that. So, that, I mean, I think second, second thing is repent. And then the third thing is um, we, have to, we have to keep talking about it in circles, in situations like this, right? It, this is something that can't go away. Um, so that, that kind of obviates itself. I think a fourth thing is, is to realize the existing opportunities that we have for healing. And, and so... I, you know, my friends know this. I've, I've, I've talked about this like over and over again, but for whatever reason, when Koreans migrated to America, we set up businesses 
you know, dry cleaners, yes, and some restaurants, yes, but we also set up a lot of businesses that are kind of catered towards the African-American community, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know where that came from. I don't know why it became so widespread. It wasn't illegal. We did this legally, but when you step back and look at it, right, like what business do we really have in these communities? It's not Mm -hmm. wrong, but I, I think, you know, as a thought experiment, like let's say we're in Korea and we're living in a poor part of Seoul and a bunch of Swedes come over from, from Sweden and they set up a shop. I don't know. That's something like catered towards us. Maybe it's like eyelid surgery. <laughs> like, like they set up these <laughs> eyelid surgery clinics. Okay. And they start off poor like us. And then over 10 years, over 20 years and 30 years, they start, we can see like, oh man, they're kind of making money. Like they're doing well. And we're, you know, we like this business. We're, we're patronizing them. Um, you know, the cars, the cars are getting nicer. Um, their clothes are getting nicer and we keep patronizing the restaurants or their, their businesses. And they're not, you know, they're not really paying attention to us. They're not really helping us out here. And we're still poor, right? Again, none of that is illegal, but I would feel some type of way about that. You know, I'd be like, man, like we're, we're actually like helping your life tremendously, but can you, can you help us out? Like, can you at least engage with us and and help us out in some way? So I, I think that, you know, a lot of the tension happens because Korean people, we live by the law. We say, I have a business here. I'm legally here. My business is to sell goods to you. I'm not making you buy it. You come in the store, you're buying it fine. And, and that's it. That's my obligation to you. But I actually think that as, as believers, we should engage with, with our communities that we do business in. And I think that's a very, very like ripe opportunity for healing. Like what would it look like for a beauty supply store in South Atlanta to put up a black lives matter sign and say, we stand with you. We're wrong for disengaging this whole time, even though we've sold our products to you for a long time, we were, we were wrong for that, but we, we want to change that narrative, right? Like, man, I just like, oh, that would just, that would wreck me because that would be so incredibly healing like yeah. that. You know, it's not going to undo and fix everything, but it, it would be a very unexpected gesture that for the African-American community if, you know, our Korean parents took that perspective, right? That would be a beautiful yeah. thing and, and we can do that. So I think there are actually a lot of ways that we can engage that don't necessarily mean that we're protesting in the streets. You know, I think we should do that if, if we feel compelled to do that, but there are other meaningful ways for us to, to stand with the black community in this city, in the short term, that can be very, very meaningful. And, you know, a, a lot of our a lot of our parents, a lot of our folks who have these businesses, they go to church. We know that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, just to kind of elaborate on the lack of engagement of Korean American businesses to the black community, that's actually one of the reasons the LA riots happened. So mm. one thing that a lot of people don't realize is they say they think it's just um, the riots happened because of the Rodney King verdict. And they criticized the riots because it affected disproportionately affected Korean American businesses when their target should have been white people. One right. thing that um, those people don't realize is the tensions between Korean Americans and, and the black community were already pretty, you know, they weren't good um, because mm-hmm. ex- exactly what you're talking about. These foreigners are moving in. 
Um, and I actually think the reason why Koreans set up businesses in those areas is because it's just cheaper rent, right? Like um, Koreans being poor just didn't have any other option. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in, in that, like you were saying, Korean Americans, they're, you know, making a lot of money. And honestly, not even really, you know, giving back to the community, right? In terms of helping um, like property value or anything like that. Because whenever we got the money, we would go to the white neighborhoods because, you know, we want to live in the affluent areas, even though we're, you know, getting money from the, the, the kind of poorer areas. So the tension was already there. Mm -hmm. And when things popped off, it was just that that anger, that tension was, that anger was already there anyways. That's, that's what really incited the, the riots and, you know, the whole rooftop Korean like story and all that. Um, so I totally, totally agree. The engagement yeah. in the community is great. And I, I want to bring it back to um, a story that you told on the KTL podcast mm -hmm. of how you kind of feel like um, you're kind of, you, you want to show gratitude because like your parents um, as uh, the small business owners and the way that you kind of funded, I don't want to say funded, but the way that you, kind of came up and became a doctor, a lot of it was indebted to um, the patronage of people in those communities. Um, and, and you, I think, mentioned the fact that being at Grady was kind of a full circle, um, like, yeah, this I received and now I'm trying to give back. And I, I always thought that that story was so amazing. And um, it was just such a beautiful story of um, recognizing um, mm. that, you know, there is, that, that, that you do see that, you had help along the way and, and you were just trying to give that help back. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, uh, I was eight years old in 1992 when I saw the LA riots on TV. I remember watching with my dad on CNN being like, what is going on? He had no answer for me. And then, so I had no context for what was happening. I don't think anybody really understood. And then you know, flash forward several years when I'm in residency, which is the post-med school training, you know, when you're, when you're still, you're a doctor, but you're not like cut loose yet. And that, you know, 2014, 2015, I was in training. I was, I was kind of finishing up my training and the defining statement of my residency was Black Lives Matter. And then it all kind of hit me. Oh my goodness, like I, my, so my parents never owned a business selling goods, but they, they, they were in insurance. And so they sold, they covered, they provided insurance for all of these no. businesses all mm -hmm. over Atlanta, right? So I indirectly benefited from that tremendously. And I don't, you know, it, it certainly I had to like kind of work through the guilt of that, but these days I don't feel guilty. I feel like, man, this is a, this is a calling that was very specific to me in this time, in this city that mm. I feel um, I thrive in, right? I, I, wow. I have been blessed tremendously to, to be able to do this. And man, it's the least I can do. Like it's the very least I can do uh, to, to, to express my gratitude and love and, um, and to, to provide the best care that I can. And so my, my teams know this, like I, I do a lot of teaching in the hospital. They know when I'm on service, like there's no shortcuts with, with Dr. Mm -hmm. Sonu, like there's no shortcuts. Mm -hmm. We will, and, and, and we're operating in a broken system, but my team knows that when I'm on service, like we are going to do, we're going to provide exceptional care because 
that is the standard that I, that, that is, is critical for me. Like that, I need to maintain that standard and, and it's just, you know, and what I love about being at Grady is that doctors who work at Grady all have that attitude. Like they all have that, that, you know, you don't have to work at Grady. Like the thing about being a doctor is like, you can work anywhere you want. Um, you can, in, in like the pay scale, like fluctuates from 150 K to, you know, 400, 500 K depending on where you want to work. Right. So you, nobody has to work at Grady, but for those who do, they're mission driven, they're committed to this cause. And so I would love to see, I would love to not be one of the few Asian Americans or the, one of the few Korean Americans doing internal medicine and pediatrics at Grady. Like I would love to see a flood of believers come in mm. with that kind of same heart. Like, man, I just want to give back. I want to be in the city. I want to be a part of the city. I, I, I want to change the narrative, right? Uh, and it's, wow. it's just amazing, like, how forgiving people are. Because I, I have this conversation all the time, you know, like, I, I, if I get to know a patient well enough, I'll be like, man, you know, like, I, I just want to say, like, we've done some wrong. Um, we've been on the wrong side of history in a lot of ways as a people. And it's just amazing how people are like, doc, don't even worry about it. Like, you know, it's not even you. Like, they just, they're so gracious. And, and so there's yeah. no, like... And, and so like that kind of interaction is, is, is like a, definitely like a secondary benefit. Like the primary issue is like, I got to take care of the person's health problems, but like to have that conversation on the side is like, so that, that's what gives me that, that kind of sense of meaning. Like when I drive out yeah. of the hospital, I can say, man, like not only did I help treat people's diseases and, you know, decompensated heart failure, whatever, I also had a conversation about race that I would never have been able to have had I not been intentionally in this space. Uh, mm. So I, I think that's a, you know, I mean, thank you for sharing that story, but you know, I, I think for, for the younger generation, like, think about that. Like you, you know, a lot of, a lot of I think young people think that like, you know, they wonder like, what, what is my story here? Like, what's like, what, what significance do I have? And you know, what, why am I Korean? You know, I don't know if anybody's ever asked them, like, why am I Korean in Atlanta in 2020? Like, there's a reason for that. And, and I think if you ask that question of like, why, you know, because it's, it's not an accident, right? Like, I'm Korean, that you're Korean, like, that's not an accident. And God didn't make a mistake when he did that. Like, that's a good yeah. thing, right? Us being Korean is a good thing, right? And, and it is something that, that God loves, right? So we, we should not be ashamed to, to be Korean and not in a proud way, but also in a way that like, we're not just Korean in our church, but we're Korean in the city and we represent what being Korean means. Right. So, so that's why I say like, you know, we're kind of in this together in a way, but for those young people who are kind of wondering like, what's my role here? Well, ask, I mean, think about what this means for your future. Like there's, there's ways to kind of bring these things together um, and and mm. I, I would not be a Grady Doc if I was not completely wrecked and changed by the gospel. Like, if mm. I wasn't a, if I wasn't a Christian, and I made it through med school, man, like, I would I would want to make money. Like, yeah. I would want to yeah. make money, and I would want to drive a Tesla and, and like have a nice house. Like, I know because I I want those things, right? So, yeah. but but 
the the way that gospel has like led me to surrender some of those things um not not because like i'm a good person but like because it just like has made sense to me in a very meaningful mm-hmm. way has it, it just changed me um to where like i i love what i do and it's hard mm-hmm. it's frustrating it's exhausting at times especially in covid but I love what I do because I, I I'm doing what I what I know God wants me to do, you know, and, and like that's a really yeah. good feeling to have. And and so I think for people who like, yeah, if you're exploring like what you want to do in life in, in this issue of, 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 of injustice, systemic racism, white supremacy, like that gets under your skin as it should, then there are ways to represent a counter narrative with your life and what you do. It doesn't have to be like. A, an eloquent post on Facebook, but they're actually kind of take the long road. That's what I was saying. Just take, just take the long road. Don't, this is not mm-hmm. about a shortcut answer to find some kind of like quick solution so you can move on to the next issue. Take the long road and ask the hard questions. And for me, that started in college. And, um, and you know, yeah, I'm just, like I said, I would not be, I would not do what I do um, if the gospel had not completely destroyed what I wanted to do and showed me a better way yeah yeah and you know i have to apologize um i was just so excited about sharing that part of your story <laughs> that i i told it when i should have actually asked you oh to tell no, no no you told it well. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um but yeah like i i i still remember when you first mentioned that how like because that was so different from the way that i was thinking um just I, it, in fact there was a part of me that even said well, you know, our parents put in their due. Um, all their success mm. is owed to them. You know, like that, like that whole Korean pride thing mm-hmm. um, and, and the way of thinking about it is it's so embedded in me that that was actually my first reaction. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wait, I disagree with this guy. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, there shouldn't be no sense of gratitude because his parents you know, did what he did, had to do. To, they did what they had to do to survive sure. and they thrived. But um, I, I did have to take a moment and say, well, but that doesn't mean that we can't show gratitude, you know, no matter how hard you work at something, um, no matter how much you feel like you've done it all yourself, no one succeeds in a vacuum. And, you know, the community around you really does impact, you know, how well you do in life, like what kind of person you are, you know, characteristics, personality and all that. So it's impossible to sever that, to say, Mm -hmm. um, the success is wholly my own. So um, I actually, yeah, I wanted to, for a long time, actually, Ben, I, I wanted to thank you for that because um, oh. it really did shift the way that I, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank, um, you, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, just, uh, this is again is kind of I don't know if this is relevant to the conversation we're mm-hmm. having, but you did kind of mention and allude to it a little bit because I've been researching um, kind of healthcare and um, how it affects Black people disproportionately. And the, the way that I got to this, I talked about this in the previous um, episode, but when my wife was pregnant, she was watching and listening to a lot of birth stories and things like that. And she came across one podcast that was talking about how um, black mothers disproportionately die in labor. Like they disproportionately have complications in labor. So when, when, as we talk about, you know, systemic issues in the police force and, and things like that, 
Is there something that need, we need to be talking about within the healthcare system? Kind of as an insider, I just wanted oh, yeah. to ask you if there's yeah, something. Yeah, absolutely. There. And I'm I'm actually really glad you brought that up because I, you know, kind of on the heels of what we just uh, what what I just was talking about. Like I I the bot I don't I don't want people to walk away from what I that story that you know me working at Grady like the the point of that story is not to say like I'm some kind of hero like at all like I am there to not only do the best be the best doctor I can be but change the system from a healthcare perspective to make it more equitable like so I am there with with that like that is my overarching mission and mm-hmm. and so I'm not there just to be like a good doctor and feel good about myself like having gratitude you know like being a blessing like that's part of it but I I want to make the system better with what I've been given. Like I have had a great education. I've had opportunities to go to good, great, great schools and do all these things. Like I'm going to, I want to be a part of the fight to make this system more equitable. Yes. Healthcare is rampant with disparities. It is rampant with inequities. Uh, African Americans are, have had and continue to have the highest rates of death from any number of chronic diseases, heart disease, COPD, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, uh, of all races, right? So that's a historical precedent that continues to this day. The gaps have narrowed somewhat, but they're still there and they're not crossing lines, right? So we're not having Asians suddenly dying more than black people or whites dying more than black people. Like it's still African-Americans lead in deaths. The reasons for that are complicated, right? They're structural factors. So if you grow up in a neighborhood where you don't have access to fresh produce, where you don't have good schools, right? So there's an educational disadvantage there. There's, a, there's food insecurity. There's violence in the community. There's community level stress, the stress of racism, the stress of discrimination. All of that affects our health. And then it shows up in some of these outcomes that we looked at, like maternal mortality or infant mortality. And and so the root cause of these, and this is part of why I care about this issue so much, is structural racism, systemic racism. Like I see that, every Grady doc sees that in the in a concentrated way in these health outcomes that are health outcomes that are so unfairly distributed on black Americans. It is, Hmm. you know, it's just, it's, it's, I tell my students, like, don't let this depress you. Let it piss you off. Like it may, it needs to make you mad. And it makes me mad. I mean, I'm still mad about it. Like, I don't know if you can tell, like, I'm, I'm I'm very, like, I get very passionate about this because it's so wrong. Like it just, it's not because like the narrative that like people just make bad decisions and they just need to take care of their bodies. Like, no, like, that that is that is so wrong. That is so wrong, and and is and it is not the complete truth. You know, it, it, there, it's so complicated. But I guarantee you, if it was easy to take care of your body, people would have done it. And so, when it comes mm-hmm. to maternal mortality, so there are the structural factors, and then there are the factors like within healthcare itself, the biases that doctors have, the biases that nurses have. We, you know, it's been well studied that. Black women who get C-sections are, are treated less adequately for their pain when they have the wow. same procedure as white women, as Asian women, as you know, Latinx women. They just get less pain medicine. Why? Because when they cry out in pain, 
we have this gut reaction. Our, our implicit bias says, oh, I don't believe you. Like you're, you're trying to get some drugs. Like you're trying to get some narcotics here. Wow. And like, I'm not about that. I'm not about to like feed into your drug, your drug seeking um, habit. Like, and, and that's, mm. that's, that's a bias that we have. And that that's part of like what we have to undo in healthcare. So yes, if anybody says healthcare is implicated in this, I say, yes, we are. Amen. And we need people to fix it from within. We need to fix it. We need people to fix it from a legislative perspective. We need people to help fix it from all angles, really. But it's a problem, just like police brutality is a problem. So I I think that, you know, when people say, like, I know a cop and he's a good guy, it's like like saying, I know a doctor and and she's a great doctor, right? But that doesn't mean that there are not inherent problems in that system. I, you know, I used to feel offended when someone would be like, man, healthcare is broke. I used to be like, well, I'm, I'm in healthcare. Like, mm-hmm. I, I kind of take that personally. But, but it's true. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it, it is what it is. Like, we are broken. We are an inequitable yeah. system. We treat those who are rich. We have a, we have a capitalist-based healthcare system that, that is not designed to prevent disease, but rather to treat disease. And so we don't have a great mechanism. You know, it, 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 we are disincentivized to prevent people from going to the hospital. When people come to the hospital and they get better, we make money. But when people stay well, never come to the hospital, we don't make money. So that's lost revenue. So there is a inherent problem in the way our health system is set up that we are dependent on people getting sick. And that is, that's effed up. Wow. You know, I'm not going to cuss yeah. on your podcast, but that is, that is really <laughs> effed up. And, yeah. and, and so that's, that's one of the things that um, I, I want to be a part of fixing because that is so wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and, and um, it just makes my blood boil. Yeah, yeah. man. But I'm, I'm so glad for your frank response because I was a, at first, I was like, should I even ask no, this question? No, no, yeah, because... yeah. No, I mean, you got to go there. <laughs> you absolutely got to go there. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's the truth yeah. so, and people should know, you know. Yeah, man, that's that's so good. That was so insightful because, yeah, it's it's so hard to, because I actually, I'm, I'm trying to research, you know, by race, how often do people um, like die under under healthcare, like under the care of a doctor or nurse or whatever. Like I came across this one Johns Hopkins study that says uh, 250,000 people died um, in 2014 because of either negligence or mis- miscare yeah, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But then there's another study that says it's actually like 400,000 deaths uh, annually. Like it's, it's really just inconsistent. And I understand yeah. um, it's probably really hard to track. And I yeah. found no studies at all based on race so mm-hmm. um I, I just from the statistics i couldn't conclude what if there was even an issue that, that's why i, I asked you mm-hmm. so i'm really glad that you shed light on that um, yeah is, I mean, is there anything the, that on oh, go ahead sorry go ahead. well i was just saying like afterwards. you know the rea- there's been a number of studies that have shown this but healthcare actually accounts for maybe 10 to 20 percent of a of it, a person's health trajectory is accounted for 10 to 20% of the time by healthcare. Most of a person's health is actually determined by what we call the social determinants of health, where a person lives, works, Mm -hmm. plays. 
that actually has a greater effect on someone's health trajectory than what we do in the hospital. So, you know, the work, so we want to keep people well as a society, we got to keep them out of the hospital because that's where the most of mm-hmm. their, you know, their health trajectory is, is, is formed. What we do in the hospital, you know, it's, it's too late in a lot of ways by then. Like I'm trying to that's mitigate it. the effect of disease uh, help prevent like further decompensation, help prevent things from getting worse. But if the disease is already there, especially if it's a chronic disease, it's hard to treat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see. So is there anything that we can be doing? Cause um, one thing that I keep like this, a lot of this is in a lot of ways overwhelming, right? Like when you start mm-hmm. looking at social injustices, you look at, you know, police brutality, but then you dig deeper and it's not just that there's, you know, these private prisons that incentivize, um, you know, lower income people going to jail that which breaks the family and then like when the family's broken there's all these other issues that so and and like when I found out about this whole healthcare thing it's it's just I, I can start to a little bit understand what black people are going through right yeah like if yeah. I'm just learning about it yeah they've been living it so yeah, um, right. so I, I, I don't know if this might be an impossible question but is there anything that we can be doing, um, at least for the healthcare part of it, that we can help to change the system? I think we have to we have to uh, act with our vote, and mm. things like the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as imperfect as it is, as much as it raises our premiums, if you're middle class, if you're self-employed. Mm. It, you know, that's why I think that the gospel speaks into that, right? The gospel speaks into how we vote for the Affordable Care Act. Why the heck would I vote for this policy that would raise my premium? I can only do that if I understand if I, if I vote for this policy, that means that more people are covered under healthcare. So it's like things like that, yeah. that as Christians, I think we really need to be challenged to think about. You can't mm-hmm. just think about your own interests as a believer, you can't just think about what it means for your own family, your own nuclear family. Like, so, so I, as, and, and I'm not saying that's easy at all, right? I, I'm not gonna, not gonna pretend, and there's no illusion there that this is easy. But I think that's like one way that we can start to think about. It. We got to vote for things that might not directly benefit us, that in fact might cost us, because we care about the sense of equity. And because we, we desire to see a more equitable system, because like you said, like when you actually take it all in, it is, it's crushing to realize like what, what people are going through, like the reality of people. Yeah. And so that's why I think like, man, the, when you see the resilience of black Americans in the midst of that, like that, yeah. that's amazing. Right. Cause like, I don't know how I, it's, they just, they just, they're just blessed by God in that way. Like they just have the, the yeah. touch of God to be able to be resilient in the midst of unfair thing after unjust thing after inequitable thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, vote for things that um, benefit directly uh, people who have been marginalized or neglected or disadvantaged. That's one tangible way. I think... Um, and you know, so I'm a supporter of Medicare for all for that very reason. I'm not going to argue with anybody who says, guess what? It's going to make things more inefficient. It's going to make things more expensive. It's going to raise taxes. I'm not going to argue with that. I agree. Like those are all potential risks. But you understand now why I would support a program like Medicare for yeah. all, right? Georgia 
and I've said this on the KTL podcast before, Georgia has one of the most ridiculously strict uh, Medicare requirements or Medicaid requirements. As a, as a single household, I think if you make more than 9,000 a year, a single person in, in a one-person household, if you make more than 9,000 a year, you don't get Medicaid, which means you don't get insurance, which means if you go to the emergency room, that $10,000 bill is on you. So like, wow. if you make $12,000 a year working at some retail store, you can't get Medicaid. Like to me, that's, that's unjust, you know, like yeah. it, that's not fair. And like people deserve to get, to get some basic health needs met. Uh, yeah. so the public can vote, you know, can act with their vote. Um, but I think in a broader conversation, not just healthcare, there's always opportunities to push equity from whatever space you're in, whatever career you're in, mm-hmm. there is always a, a, a a way to think, make things more equitable, more diverse, um, help help increase representation because that's part of the problem. Is like a lot of these issues get neglected because a voice is missing from the table. Um, that's very true in healthcare. You look at CEOs of health systems across the country, um, chairmen of departments, division directors. Uh, very, there's a very small proportion of, of those people who are people of color, and if they're not there at the table then they're not going to be able to voice interest in, in cause action. So my boss is black at Grady. And, and I'm not going to share the story. Like in February, I posted about this on Facebook. Like I had this event happen to me when, the, when like stuff against Asian Americans, um, like kind of racist acts against Asian Americans was like really, um, it was just occurring all over, the, all over the world, right? So this thing happened to me in clinic where I was coming to clinic. I, I was like sick the week before. And coronavirus is like starting to like, it was like, it was actually like, it spread outside of Wuhan at the time, but it wasn't yet in this country. And a lot of people were like afraid of it. I wore a mask to clinic and like had so many people say so many racist things to me that day. Right. Mm. And I wrote about it on Facebook and it it was like, I'm not going to spoil the story. If you want to read about it, go ahead, please. My point of the story is my block, my boss who's black saw that story and she said, we need to have a bystander training, Emory-wide, right? So wow. I don't know if a person who's white would have done that. She said, you know, her, 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 what she came to me was like, you know, are you willing to share this first? So, so like, she knew how to ask me, right? She knew how to ask me to share a painful story. Like, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is it was on her radar to think that this is a priority for other people to know, right? So this black woman stood up for me to make sure that the rest of Emory is educated around how to address microaggressions against Asian Americans. That happened last month, right? So that's what happens when you diversify your leadership. You get those different viewpoints. I benefit from it as a Korean American, and so do other Korean Americans, right? So I, you know, like stuff like that is kind of how change happens on an incremental level. And, and so I think there's a lot of hope in that sense when we, when we can diversify our leadership and, and I, I'm, I'm proud to, that she's my boss. You know, like I'm, I'm super wow. proud. She's my boss. She's an amazing person. And I, and I can't imagine working for anybody else. Yeah. You know, um, it's funny at one point in the podcast, you said you're not a hero. But I think you're constantly giving us traits as to why you are a hero. Because even sharing that story, I think, is is heroic. Um, given our background, given our kind of what our culture looks like, 
Because um, one thing that me and my wife really struggle with in terms of microaggressions is so often we say, well, they probably didn't mean anything by it. And mm. we kind of sweep it under the rug and pass by. But for, for you to say and recognize that that's an issue and share and be willing to talk to your boss about it and things like that, like you've paved the way for everyone coming after you, which I is mean, a <laughs> heroic thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. It it uh, it was definitely a, like a vulnerable thing, and um, mm. you know, we've actually had like two different kinds of trainings. And the second one was for like a smaller group, and I told that story live, and I couldn't get through it. I I broke down crying oh, um, man, because yeah. it was like it was that painful still. And so, yeah. uh, but I mean, I, yeah, I think um, I'm happy to stand up. And, you know, and take the punches like that, because I, that that that's nothing. It, all it, it all it costs me is being vulnerable. And I think um, mm. and, I, and I, I've been reading a lot of Brene Brown books lately. And if you don't know Brene Brown, you should read her like she's she she has a really interesting take on what leadership is. And and one of the things that she she talks a lot about is leadership is this will or courage in leadership is this willingness to be vulnerable in mm-hmm. to not to not be able to control the outcome and that is what galvanizes people to follow if you are willing to be vulnerable and show that side of you um people like latch on to that and so i had read that book like last year and i was like man i guess you know crap like i guess i gotta do this now because this is a very tangible way to be vulnerable um yeah. so yeah i mean I, I i appreciate that yeah i mean i and, and so i i hope um it, it was, what was cool about that that event too, the, the larger one was that there were a few people on the call who were older physicians and they were like Chinese American, Korean American. And they reached out to me after and they're like, man, thank you. And so I, I was really moved by that. Like these people who have been, who are more established in their careers, who are a higher rank than me, never had had a conference like that for them. And they were mm-hmm. kind of like, I'm, you know, I, I, I feel seen now and that is like one of the greatest feelings in the world when you are seen as a Korean American uh, and that is okay like that you know like to hear that from an institution from your boss from your colleagues like that is that is special and we're so used to like that like I know David like I just met you right but I know like you're used to not being seen I am used to not being seen. I'm used to being like everything but Korean. And, and, mm. But to have that like validated, you stay in your great, and I love that you're Korean. Like that's part of why you're great. Wow. Like that's, really, that's a really cool thing to, to hear and, and, and have acknowledged. And um, it makes me feel good that I work at Emory, for sure. Yeah. And, and to just bring it full circle, um, that's not that's not something that's afforded to a lot of our black brothers and sisters. Like being celebrated for like, cause so much of their culture and history is just oppression. Um, they're not really celebrated in that way that often. Um, if anything, the, what we're seeing a lot is, um, I mean, cause there are always people who say the reason for the oppression is the fault of the black people, you know, and they list off whatever reasons mm-hmm. and, it's so so much of that. If if I were black and I was hearing that, I'd be like, man, like I wish I weren't black. Like that would be my initial mm-hmm. thought, and that's such a like 
to want to reject your identity, like something that you can't change and something that you should like be proud of to have the world around you tell you that like you're worse off because of it. Like I can't even imagine. Um, yeah, because even for us, when we are acknowledged as Korean Americans, like Korean being the emphasis, like that just brings about a joy that like we don't feel that often. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, man, I mean, yeah, totally agree. And you know that that's a problem of um, white supremacy that says yeah. what's beautiful is white, skinny, and blonde, um, and I think that's infiltrated East Asia in a in a horrendous yeah. way where. People want to make their skin pale. They want to make their eyelids doubled. Um, and, you know, I'm, you know, not to like critique anybody for doing that, but I think the 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 ideal of beauty um, is n- is n- not always emphasized as just who we are, right? And yeah. I think um, one of the beautiful narratives from African Americans is this kind of story about beauty from ashes. Um, mm everybody around the world loves African-American culture. Um, you know, Korean people can dance now because they've, they've tried, they've copied African-Americans. So we, we, we like to pull from their culture, all the things we want to. And then we, we, and then implicitly say, but like, we don't like you. Right. And that's a really painful thing, uh, to, to have to hear and endure. And so again, to bring it full circle, right, when you go back to the lootings and you see that, right, you see everywhere on the world, everybody loves your culture, they love your music, they love your fashion, they love your shoes, right, but they don't love you enough to stand up for you and with you. Uh, that's painful, right? And that, yeah. that's, that's Han, right? Like that, that would create some Han in me, yeah. you know, that would bring that junk yeah. out, right? So I, I think we have to, to acknowledge some of those things. Um, if you love black culture, then you better stand up for black culture. Like you better stand mm-hmm. up for it because otherwise you, you're, you're, you're extrapolating. It's colonialism. You know, you're picking and choosing what you want and mm-hmm. leaving everybody in the wake of your, uh, of your treachery, um, you know, so to speak. So, yeah. Yeah. Man, this this talk. I'm sorry, it, it took way longer. No, than I love it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I go on that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, man, thank you so much for um being with uh, being on with us today. Um, so much insight. Um, and yeah, I just yeah, I'm really hoping that this really does um give weight to everything that's happening because like you were like we were discussing Korean Americans, we tend to keep to ourselves. We're pretty. We're really insulated. And, and so sometimes the gravity of the situations happening around us is not um, readily apparent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping that today's conversation brings more light to that. Um, before before we uh, log off, um, is there anything that, that you wanted to discuss and talk about that, that I, I didn't catch? Yeah, I mean, I think we covered a lot of things. Um, and you know, I, I think, again, the what, what I would say is like my, my sort of bottom line is that I love the Korean American church. I have great hope for the Korean American church. I think that it has a place a meaningful place in our society, in this city. I think we need to expand our vision collectively of what that looks like. 
And it's not, and, I, and I'll say like maybe provocatively, like it's not just business as usual, like what we're doing now. It's mm-hmm. not just Sunday morning service, some songs and a sermon, Wednesday night Bible study, some small groups during the week. Like it's not just that. I think, I think God wants us to engage in a deeper way with, with this city on a local level. And so that gives me a lot of hope because I think that there are a lot of really gifted people, a lot of, you know, and, and, and again, the other thing I'll say too, and kind of part two to that is, and I hope that's come out here is like, I, I, the, the reason I care about all these issues is not because I've rejected some part of the gospel, but to me, this is like, I have been changed by the gospel and I'm on this journey. So I'm not where I, you know, I think I'm, I think 10 years from now, I hope I'm, I'm even, you know, um, living in greater surrender, you know, maybe I won't be living in North Druid Hills. Maybe we'll be living in West End, you know, maybe, maybe we'll be living more, more proximally to Grady. Right. So like I mm. want to be challenged and I don't want to be stagnant. And so I, I think some, maybe some of the fear that people have in engaging with these issues is that they think that it'll be in conflict with their faith or that it'll be compromising some of their core values, but that couldn't be any further from the truth, you know, at least for me. And so I love the Lord. I love the Korean American church. I have great hope for it. And I think that, um, you know, I'm not mad at the Korean, Korean American church or anything like that. I, I think that we just gotta, we just gotta have, keep talking about stuff like this. And, and once, and, and again, when you listen and you hear something that's true, that changes you. So that's a hard step to take. Are you willing to be changed? Like that's, that's a step number one. And, and, and so because once you hear something, you can't unhear it. Once something is true to you, it, you can't untrue that. Like it, it's going to change you. It's going to be a seed that grows. And, and so I, I would love for that seed to grow in anybody who's listening here. If anything resonated, especially if you're, if you're in, in youth group and you're wondering like, what does God have for my life? Like I hope some, any of this would kind of touch you and, and help you to realize like you matter, who you are matters where you are matters, um, black lives matter. Um, but, but, you know, like all those things are not by mistake and, and because you go to the church you do is not by accident either. And so, um, be bold, be courageous. And, um, I, I, I'll, I'm happy to share my email. It's stansonu at gmail.com S T A N S O N U at gmail.com. Like, I would love for anybody who has questions or wants to talk more about this stuff to email me again. I, I just, I love the church and like, I, I wouldn't have done this if I didn't care. And, and so, yeah. um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody further. Yeah. And, and I'm, I think it's really apparent in the way, in the conversation we had that you do have a heart for the church. Um, and I'm really hoping anyone listening, I don't think it should come off this way, but I'm, I'm really hoping that no one took away that we're like criticizing the church. Yeah, we're not yeah, saying yeah, that yeah, the Korean yeah, American yeah. church. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we obviously always have room for growth and it's, you know, as like you were saying, one thing I want, I did want to talk about is um, Atlanta, Georgia is unique in most of the cities in the U S in the sense that we're only really in the second generation of the immigrant Korean Americans. Like if you go to like LA, like DC, um, New York, Chicago, mm-hmm. they're like on like their third or fourth generation. So yep. their identities are much more established. So mm-hmm. um, we're just 
adding to like what the Korean church can become. Um, no way are we disparaging it saying that it's unsalvageable mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. that there's something fundamentally wrong. So yeah, I'm, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. And so guys, if uh, yeah, what we talked about resonated, you could email me at ishthdpodcast at gmail.com or Dr. Stan, um, as he said, uh, stanshonu at gmail.com or reach out on uh, Instagram at I hope they hear this or on Twitter at ishthdpodcast. And um, if you feel like there are people who would be... Um, yeah, constructive in continuing this dialogue please uh connect us because that's kind of what, what happened here um yeah you are i don't know if i mentioned it but you're the brother-in-law of one of our previous guests uh, jessica wing mm-hmm. and she reached out saying hey my brother-in-law would be perfect to have this conversation so that's how we got connected um so yeah um yep shout out to jesse i'm so proud of her yeah 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 um let's let's keep this dialogue going Let, let's keep talking and figuring out know this all together um because yeah i think really we are at a crossroads we there is a turning point something is changing so we don't want to miss out on that yeah so uh thank you uh for everyone who turned uh, tuned in and uh, thank you dr stan i'm sorry Do- Just thank stan. you stan yeah. <laughs> thank you stan for being on and uh yeah uh, we'll, we'll talk to you next time bye guys Alrighty.